today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. We talk to those from the industry and learn about them and their favorite scores. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So let's take a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we're going to play today. That was the main titles from the film The Untouchables, written by, it's sad to say, the late Ennio Morricone, who died July 6, 2020, in his home uh, in Rome. He was 91 years young. There's nothing I can say to express the magnitude of this loss. A giant in film music, for that matter, and in all of music. So I thought it would be appropriate to celebrate the man and his music, and that's what we'll do. 
I have two guests that will tell us about the man, his contributions, and of course his music. But before we dive in, I want to uh, play one more cue that was chosen by one of our patrons, Douglas Lacey. The cue is from the film A Time of Destiny. That was where we'll begin as we celebrate the life and career of Ennio Morricone. Welcome back. I'm uh, here with uh, Gurge Hubai, who is a, a past guest of our program, uh, you might recall. He is a, an author and also a professor who is extremely knowledgeable uh, on, uh, on film scores and on film composers. And I thought it'd be appropriate to have him join us today to, to talk about uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, Gurge, hi. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Glad to be here, though I wish the occasion was something happier, but here we are. Yes, I, I, I concur, but uh, rather instead of looking at the sadness of the situation, hopefully we can look at it as a celebration. Uh, and that's kind of the, the angle I want to go with is that um, it's a really big question, but I'd be curious what your thoughts are. Uh, what do you see as, as Morricone's greatest accomplishments? And I'll, I, that's plural. In other words, I'm not asking you to name just one, but what do you think are some of the real significant accomplishments that he had as a, as a film composer? Yeah, if I have to pick one, I think that in the 1960s, 
Um, there were several composers at the same time who have proven that film music and pop music can have a sort of, uh, you know, cross-section. That because something is part of a film score doesn't mean it's relegated to the film. In Hollywood, it would be something like Henry Mancini and the Pink Panther theme. In, uh, you know, Britain, it would be something like John Barry. And in continental Europe, it would be very clearly Ennio Morricone, who, of course, had a great luck with doing uh, some of the most memorable Western films. And uh, But, you know, the scores he did uh, for, uh, you know, Fistful of Dollars or Good, the Bad and the Ugly, they did uh, feed off from his background in pop music and jazz music. And he just spun these themes around and created memorable film scores that are very much recognized outside the films, outside the films as well. Yeah. Do you, do you have any idea? Because the thing that one of the things that impresses me was he was so prolific. I mean, if I recall correctly, it's something like over 400 scores. Maybe you have an more accurate number, but it, is there anyone out there that composed more film scores than he did? Well, maybe someone, some people in the Golden Age Hollywood were close to that number. Max Steiner is also clearly in the several hundreds category. But those were a bit different times because then film composers were literally delivered their job on a plate. Like you had to, you know, you have one week or two weeks to write this score. And that way you could easily get out a new film score every single month. Uh, and his secret is that, uh, you know, he, he, he was kind of a workhorse. He loved working. And of course, after a certain time, he did build up a sizable library, uh, which he could reach back to. And in the early 1970s, which was like crazy prolific, he would have 14 or 18 scores a year, which if you, if you do your math is like more wow. than one of, <laughs> more than one score a month. The secret there was that he was, these were mostly Italian films. And he didn't really have to bother with the specific, like, you know, timing or writing cues. He could just record the music and the editors would make it fit, which, of course, speeds up the process considerably. Now, this is something he didn't really do in Hollywood, with some exception. He did write specific picture, specific music for the Hollywood productions. But in Italy, after a certain time, he could he could just do these massive recording sessions and they would just be using the film uh, with a little creative editing. Huh. Well, you know, and you bring up an interesting point that I was wanting to ask about, because as far as I know, he largely was based in Rome for his entire career. I don't think he ever lived in the States. I'd like to hear that from you. But, and, and yet even being based in Rome, he was, he was a hot commodity in the States and in other hot spots for, for filmmaking. How did he pull that off? I mean, did he go to the States to record or did he insist on recording in, in Rome? I'm kind of curious about that. He, he usually is when possible. He, he preferred to, uh, record in Rome, for instance, uh, lots of his later uh, Hollywood movies, the last few ones were always recorded in Rome, and even something like The Thing by John Carpenter, uh, that was something that he, he, he very heavily uh, worked on in Rome. He did go to the US, I, I believe, for some uh, meeting there, but, uh, but uh, for instance, there were very few scores recorded in Hollywood. One I, I remember, which, you know, we are going to get back to it, White Dog, I will, I will talk a bit about this, hopefully a bit more. White Dog was recorded in the United States in, in, uh, for uh, Paramount, I believe. But uh, I, would, I, would, <laughs> I don't want to say something uh, silly, 
but I would say maybe a dozen of his calls were recorded in the states maximum. He he wow. very much he very much worked in the in in, in Rome, and uh, some of his even some of his best known Hollywood scores. Uh, were recorded there. I, uh, I, um, if if you just have a minute, uh, can we just take a little pause? I I just check something quickly. Sure. Okay. Just, just uh, it to... is. It's actually quite amazing that someone that shows you just how good he was that he could actually command the fact that look, I'm based in Rome. I know the musicians here. We're going to record here, uh, even though the movie is based in Hollywood, and he could get away with that, which a lot of composers maybe couldn't. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for instance, the the big one he did, the the first big one for Paramount, the uh, Days of Heaven, for which he was reco- uh, was nominated for an Oscar, that right. was recorded in Rome. That was wow. uh, very much recorded in Rome, even though you would believe it's a, it's a Hollywood score. It was recorded in Rome. Hmm. Well, now I know that uh, so, you. Sorry, excuse me. Oh, there, go is, ahead. there is one one other other explanation is that he didn't really speak English. So uh, he he I, I believe he understood some English, but he never felt comfortable talking with it, and he always worked with a translator. When he recorded in Hollywood on those few occasions, uh, he would either use a translator or he would just give very quick, brief, and usually you know because Italy is kind of the language of music recording. He would just you know tutti or something like that. He would give precise Italian instructions. But uh, you know, having not speaking English was another major reason why he preferred to record in in his uh, hometown of Rome. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, now now I'm going to put you on the spot now. If mm-hmm. if and I realize this is almost next to impossible. So it's you know it's. I'm sure there might be several that you could think of, but, but for purposes of our show today, if there was, is there one particular favorite cue that you could think of that, uh, that would represent your love of, uh, Ennio Morricone's music? Uh, yes. And, uh, I, the, the moment you mentioned it, I, I immediately, uh, knew what to think about because I'm, I'm sure many people will pick, uh, if, if more people are speaking, I'm sure they would pick something like, uh, one of the famous, uh, you know, Ecstasy of Gold or some of the Western music. So I'm going to pick one of the few scores he did record in Hollywood, and I mentioned it, White Dog. It's a it's a barely known film, and now it's a bit better known. Back then, it was it was not shown in cinemas. It, Paramount took it over the cinemas. They didn't show it. And it huh. only gathered, this is a Sam Fuller picture, it only gathered steam when it was released on DVD and later, I think it's also on Blu-ray. And it's one of the few th- few times when he did go to Hollywood, he uh, recorded on a Paramount scoring stage, and he actually uh, celebrated his birthday on the recording stage with a cake. Mm. And uh, the White Dog is, you know, it's a story about, uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about a story about a dog who has been trained to, uh, to hate African-American people, even as a puppy. And one, once he got a new owner, the new owner believes that the dog can be cured, uh, it can be reprogrammed, retrained, and uh, the cue I'm going to show you is from the finale of the picture, which I, you know, I don't want to ruin the movie for anyone who wants to see it after this, but it shows you the inner minds of the dog, so you're going to hear really scary music in it, like like really mind-melting uh, uh awfulness and then you will hear hear some some of the good side of the dog you know light piano music like 
the dog is learning, uh, you know, what love is and stuff like that. But eventually, okay. I think I think the music will tell you how he how the dog decides in the end. Oh, terrific! Well, let's uh, let's give that a listen, and uh, also uh, thank you, Gergay, for uh, for joining us today. I appreciate your help, and let's listen to this cue that he described. I'm really interested in hearing it.
Well, we're delighted to have back a, a guest that we've had in the past who of one of our more popular programs. He's uh, written liner notes for uh, CDs and is uh, very popular in film music circles as being an opinion maker. And uh, He's been with us again on a program before. Uh, please help me in uh, joining, uh, joining with me to welcome Stephen Woolston to the program. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Frank. It's good to be back. Uh, I, I'm delighted. I'm really, uh, uh, I really appreciate you doing this because we, this is a, a tribute program to Ennio Morricone. And as I was telling you before we started recording, I, I must, I must plead a little bit of ignorance and I almost feel ashamed. I don't know the man's career as good as some of our listeners. And your name instantly came to mind when I thought about doing this uh, tribute show. And so I'm delighted you were able to join us. Oh, bless you, Frank. And, you know, I mean, there are some really great experts out there. I'm not one of the greatest experts, but, but you know, I've certainly got a lot of his albums. I've certainly spent a lot of time exploring his music, and I'm just delighted to be able to share this with you. Yeah. No, hey, you're a fan, you know, and that's and that's that's what I want mostly is a fan's perspective. So that's 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 perfect. Um, I thought we'd start off by talking about it. And it's interesting because this was a man that was prolific in his career, I think over 400 scores. And he is known for some Hollywood uh, bits, but he was actually, uh, uh, his career was, he lived in and was centered in Rome and Italy. And I guess he he was, he was big time in Italy, wasn't he? He was huge. I mean, I, I don't think people outside of Italy can really appreciate uh, how huge he was. I mean, over the course of the last three years, I've worked quite a lot in Italy. And one of the big things that I noticed, Frank, is that everybody knew Morricone. I mean, it's not like in the US and the UK where knowledge of, of even our most famous film composers is still pretty sketchy. I mean, you know, you think about the UK. Yeah, John Barry is reasonably well known, but, but right. not universally known. There's a lot of people who wouldn't know who he was. You, you go to America. Okay, John Williams is pretty universal, but, you know, like right. Jerry Goldsmith, a lot of people in America knew who Jerry Goldsmith was, but, but not everybody. In Italy... Everybody. I mean, when I worked in Italy, uh, you know, everybody that I worked with recognized the name. Everybody was happy to hear the name. Many of them had been to concerts of Morricone. You know, he was a national treasure. And, you, you know, the, the day that he died, you know, this wasn't just a headline story. This was the number one national story in Italy. All of the Italian front pages of all the news sites was all Morricone. It's like nothing else mm. happened that day. You know, it was like the death of royalty in Italy. Yeah, that's how yeah. big he was. Huge in Italy, absolutely huge. Well, you know, we're going to go away from Italy for a minute, but I think we're going to come back when we talk about some of his works. It, mm. you, you almost can't begin a conversation about Morricone without talking about one of his more famous efforts that certainly got him uh, noticed here in America in Hollywood. Uh, the film I'm talking about is for a few dollars more, and the the cue is called the Final Gunfight, and that was one you wanted to share with our listeners. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to uh, play that one today. Well, it was one of the earliest things that I discovered Morricone through. I mean, like a lot of people in the eighties uh, and and well, seventies and eighties, I my first Morricone album was a, a an LP which had on side one music from a fistful of dollars, and on side two for a few dollars more. It was a Camden uh, label LP, and I played that thing to death. And the final gunfight, was, you know, it's just so powerful. And you know, I just think it's a great place to start. And, and, and I, I might be wrong in this, but I do recall, I don't know if it's this one, maybe you can confirm this for me. 
There was a scene in one of those movies where he had already composed the music and I heard they actually played it while they were filming the scene. Is this that example or have you heard that before? That, that, that has happened on, on some of Sergio Leone's films. I don't know for sure. Personally, I don't know for sure if it happened on A Fistful of Dollars or A Few Dollars More. Uh, I, I know it happened on Once Upon a Time in the West. I know it okay. happened in Once Upon a Time in America. So it was certainly a way of working that, that Ennio Morricone had developed with Sergio Leone. And yeah, that's fascinating. Exactly. And the magic of that, of course, is that you can create the music and edit the film to the music. And I think that's a beautiful way of doing it. And have the actors kind of reacting to it as well, you know, visceral reactions yeah. to the music. Exactly. Well, let's, let's, have a list, let's have a listen to this. This, again, is the, the cue is called The Final Gunfight, and it's from the well-known film called For a Few Dollars More. And, of course, it's written by the person we're talking about today, the maestro, Ennio Morricone.
I had mentioned, and maybe I got ahead of myself here a little bit, but I, I found it, um, I don't know what the final number is, but it's some astronomical number of like over 400 uh, scores that he's written. He was extremely prolific. Uh, do, do you have any idea what the what the actual number is or, or what he did uh, did in his career? Do you have any clue no, on that? Not, not exactly. I think it's over 500, though, maybe even close to 550. Oh. Uh, but, you know, there are film scores and there are film scores. I mean, there are some film scores where I, I think he's very intimately involved and in writing, you know, a, a, a large amount of music. And there were probably other films where he, he basically wrote one theme and recorded a few variations of it. You know, so I think I think there was a complete spectrum there of, of mm. different levels of uh, you know of work. But yeah, I think the number of titles is, is you know over five hundred. Do you recall when he uh, when he kind of when he started composing for film roughly? Uh, my recollection it was um, you know like 1960, 59, something like that. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm ashamed to say I, I can't remember off the top of my head to be honest, but it's somewhere around there, I think. But he had a, a, a 50 plus year career, in other words. Yeah, well, in fact, 60 years if you think about it, because the, wow. the, the final concert was called the 60 Years of Music, um, you know, concert. Wow, amazing! You. Um... Look, I'm not even going to attempt to try to say some of these Italian things. My Italian is horrible. But the, the movie, I, the movie, I believe, is called Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and you wanted to play that one today. Tell, tell us a little bit about uh, about that particular cue. Well, the, the amazing thing about Ennio Morricone is just the the sheer range of stuff that he's done, and especially when you go into his Italian back catalogue, there, there's just this great big long list of interesting movies with with interesting scores. And uh, I first heard this track on a compilation uh, album called Mondo Morricone, uh, Volume One, and it blew me away. I I, I just love this this um, you know the lounge sound to it, the the, the, the you know the slightly avant garde approach to it. It's just a delicious piece of music, and it's called La Luciatola. The Italian title of the film is Una Luciatola con la pelle di donna, and that, as you said, is a lizard in a woman's skin. Wow. Oh, I'm impressed with that, with that Italian. Excellent. All right. Well, let's, let's have a listen to this. Uh, the tune is called what, what Steven said. Okay. And it's by Morricone. <laughs> have a listen.
he was uh it's safe to say i think that he was a a trendsetter but he also didn't mind i guess you know taking from other genres of music or, or things in the culture to kind of influence his uh music and you want to talk a little bit about that well the amazing thing about morricone is just the, the various ranges and styles that they incorporated. I mean, obviously, he had an appreciation for classical music, and that comes through in a lot of his scores. He was a, a master pop arranger, and that comes through in a lot of his scores. He loved experimentation and improvisation, and that comes through you know, in a lot of his scores. And in fact, on the improvisation side... I was watching the, the Blu-ray disc of one of his films. Uh, the, the film is La Photo Proibite uh, Per Una Signora Pebenio. I, I, I might have got that a little bit wrong. But anyway, uh, The Forbidden Photos of, of, a, uh, of, a, of a Woman. You know, Again, I can't quite get the title right. But I was watching, <laughs> That's the, Blu-ray. I was watching the Blu-ray the other day, and there's, there's a feature on that which talks about uh, Morricone's scoring and the fact that, that you know an amount of his Italian film scoring was improvisational you know he, he had these wonderful themes which he composed but he also had this experimental and this improvisation uh, nature and you know all these styles came into his music frank you know like you say you can hear the, the classical you can hear pop you can hear avant-garde you can hear jazz you can hear you know, and, and from both smooth jazz through to to really quite anarchic uh, jazz and improvisation oh. and, and it's just so so many things in there you know he, he was a he was a genius without a doubt. Wow. Wow. Well, it, I, I take it there's an example here that you've picked to kind of show a little bit about that. It's okay. I'm going to give it a shot. I'll try anyway. Let's see. La, la Asutlutu <laughs> Natural. La Asutlutu Natural. Yes, exactly. I think okay. we, uh, close. Well, anyway, that, that was a track you wanted to play and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so again, I, I I used to go to a shop in Leeds called Movie Boulevard, and um, you know, number one they were John Barry fans, but number two they were Ennio Morricone fans. And at the time, there was a lot more Ennio Morricone coming out than than John Barry. And uh, I was in the shop one day, and um, uh, this particular score had just been reissued uh, on the Cinevox label, and they said, "Hey, have a listen at this." And the track that, that I've chosen is called uh, "Sempre Più Verita," which I believe is the main title music. Uh, from the movie. I think, I'm not sure if this is a literal translation, but I believe that in in um, the Western market, the movie is called He and She. Um, and funny enough, I was actually having a look at the movie on YouTube earlier today because I didn't realize that it was there. Um, hmm. Yeah, in Italian, unfortunately, not not with, with with no subtitles, so I couldn't really understand it. But um, but they played me this thing, and it was such an earworm. And, and this, I think, comes more from his pop influence, which you know, I think was incredible uh, in the 60s. Um, you know, I mean, our friend, our mutual friend, Mark Ashby, was making the point on some of our recent Zoom calls uh, that, that Morricone and uh, Barry in the 60s really brought pop music into film music and did it successfully, not, you know, in, a, not in a cheesy way, but in a successful way. Mm, yeah. And it was a, a breath of fresh air. It, it, it was a new wave in film music. And I think that this track perfectly captures what, what Morricone brought to movies from pop and how he did it successfully. All right, well, let's have a listen to this. Another Morricone uh, cue that's written for uh, an Italian film. We'll have a listen and we'll come back.
I, I usually a lot of people don't in, in this business, I would guess that most of them don't usually just start off immediately composing for films. They must have had kind of worked into that particular profession, maybe as a musician or something. But what was a what was what was it in the case of uh, Eno? Where did he get started before he was uh, composing for film? Well, I mean, I believe he was classically educated, but I believe his first employment in the music industry was, um, you know, in in the pop business. Uh, hmm. For anybody who's listening, um, if you know, if you can get hold of the Arena Concerto DVD, uh, I don't know if it's still in print or not. I, I hope so. But if you can get hold of that, there's a documentary on that, uh, which I think is is really informative about Ennio's. Uh, early career but yeah I, I believe that his first employment was in the pop industry doing pop arrangements and and um that kind of thing and one of the the really big things from very early in his career before he was really known in film uh was uh, you know he, he did a song called uh, say telefonando with the italian singer mina uh and you know this oh, okay. as far as i know it was a huge hit obviously i wasn't around at the time so i i can't remember I, you know i've got no idea what the actual impression in Italy was at the time but it has certainly stood the test of time and it's been played again years after years after years and yeah you know, and I, I think it's really good to go back to this song because it's kind of you know it, for me it sort of illustrates the, the the simple genius that Ennio Morricone brought to music and I think it's that same kind of genius that he brought into film music as he got into movies so I think this is a good way of looking right back at his early career and, and and seeing that early genius. Okay, so this this cue or uh, so it's a it's a song with lyrics and a singer. That's right. It's not from a movie. This this, this is from his um, career in pop music. Okay, uh, say te- telefonando. That's one. Say telefonando. Okay, not bad. I guess. All right, let's have a <laughs> listen to this. And and is Nina singing on this? Mina sings. Yes. Okay. Oh, that's, that's cool. All right, let's have a listen. Sorprese 
I'm wondering how, you know, I guess the cinema scene was, it was, it was pretty big in Europe, uh, you know, in the fifties and the sixties into the seventies, but you know, anybody who really wanted to be big in cinema, obviously you had to somehow come to America or do, do work for, uh, for Hollywood. That's, that was the, I don't know how to describe it, but obviously that was the king of all cinema was to get work done there. And yet early on in his career, he was doing mostly Italian films. What, what led to him finally getting a, a chance to uh, work on uh, some Hollywood major films uh, in America? Yeah. Well, do you know what? I, I don't know whether whether Ennio Morricone particularly had the ambition of, of working in America. I, I, I suspect, and I don't know this for sure, I suspect he was quite happy working in Italy where, where he was you know the, the number one man. But yeah. um, So I, I don't know what actually led to him uh, you know, doing his first uh, Hollywood movies, uh, but we. But one thing I know for sure, though, is that a number of big directors in Hollywood certainly grew to admire Morricone's music because it had become, you know, legendary. Uh, you know, for example, we know that Warren Beatty, uh, you know, was a fan. We know that John Carpenter was a fan. We know that Brian De Palma was a fan. So, yeah. what I don't know the exact circumstances that led to. Uh, Ennio Morricone doing his his uh, first Hollywood uh, movies. We all know that he did have a Hollywood period to his career where he was working on movies like Days of Heaven, where he was working on movies like The Thing, where he was working on movies like The Untouchables, uh, for example. And um, well, you know, in parallel with continuing to have an Italian career, and you know, so so there was this period where. You know, his name was big on Hollywood movies as well as Italian movies. And I think this was a, a magical period. I mean, you, you mentioned before we started recording what a genius score uh, you know, the, the Untouchables is. And I totally agree with you on that. You know, and, and things like Mission to Mars, for example. You know, plenty yeah. of really, really good stuff going on um, you know, in, in these Hollywood movies from Ennio Morricone. Would, would he come to the States to, uh, to work on these or did he work at these in Rome and record in Rome? Do you, do you know by any chance? Uh, I, yeah, it, it may be mixed. I, I don't know for certain. I do believe, uh, I mean, the one I know the most about, to be honest, is the thing. Um, and it is my belief that uh, Ennio Morricone recorded in uh, Hollywood for the orchestra sessions. I could be mistaken, but that's my belief. Um, okay. But I also believe, though, that, that so what happened on The Thing is that uh, Ennio Morricone recorded some uh, orchestral music, and he didn't really score it to picture, as far as I know. I, I believe that uh, he really sort of wrote it and recorded it like library music, so that John Carpenter could, could you know, use it like library music. And, and my understanding, and, and this, this is from um, some interviews I think I've read with, with John Carpenter, uh, that may be on the the thing Blu-ray or something like that. That 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 John Carpenter really liked what Ennio had written, but said to him, "But can you also do some electronic stuff?" And uh, apparently, he played him something like um, "Escape from New York, New York" and said, "You know, can you write a few pieces like this as well?" And I'm not certain about this. I don't know for sure, but I think he may have recorded those ones in Rome. I'm not certain about that, but I yeah. think. Next. Well, to, to start off our uh, look at, at some of his uh, Hollywood works, uh, you've chosen a cue from a, the film called Casualties of War. Tell us a little bit about uh, your inclusion, including that in your tribute today. Well, the reason I, I included this is, I mean, Casualties of War has got the most heartbreaking theme, but there's a build-up to this. You know, it starts off soft 
and it builds up, it gets harder, it goes to a crescendo, and then it's just a devastating conclusion. And when you see it on the picture, uh, you know, it, it's twice as devastating. But I, I just think this is such a perfectly formed piece of movie music from, you know, uh, from the, the start through the build-up through to the crescendo and the conclusion. Okay, excellent. Let's have a listen to this. Again, this is from the film Casualties of War. The cue is called The Death of Owen. You know, in preparing for the show, I uh, was doing some reading on on the life and work of of Morricone, and there seemed to be one universal thing that most people would mention, almost almost to exactly a person that wrote about him, would always say he should have won an Oscar for his work on the film The Mission, and they always mention the cue that you're that we're going to play here, Gabriel's oboe. Um, I'm really excited to hear this. T- talk about your wanting to. Uh, include this uh, on the tribute show today? Well, simply, the mission was one of Ennio Morricone's most major successes. And, you know, it it was a huge success on the screen. It was a huge success in the public with a soundtrack album. I mean, you know, some soundtrack albums go way beyond film music fans and, Mm. and become popular, major popular 
hits. And the mission was that for Ennio Morricone. I mean, I understand that the Mission soundtrack album did did huge amounts for Virgin Records. And um, yeah, and, and it's one of the big things I remember, uh, you know, that people remember him for. I mean, again, when I, when I think back to when I was working uh, in Italy recently, now, at the time, I was working half in Italy, half in the UK. Or, uh, and when I was in the UK, some of my UK colleagues, I, I, I mentioned about Morricone, they weren't as familiar with him as the my Italian colleagues were. But one person said, oh, the mission, that's the mission guy, right? And, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you, you got it. You know, the, the, the mission is so, you know, it's so in the public consciousness. And I do believe it is one of his most perfect creations. It's certainly one of his most critically acclaimed scores. And the interesting thing, actually, is on my 18th birthday, I decided I was going to treat myself to a soundtrack CD. And the soundtrack CD that I treated myself to was the mission. So uh, as well as being a major success for Ennio Morricone, a major public success, a major critical success, a major commercial success, you know, it's, it's also a CD that I associate with my 18th birthday all those all days funny. ago. Uh, that's great. That's great. Let's have a listen to this. Again, this is uh, called Gabriel's Oboe, and it's from the film The Mission. I, uh, again, kind of in my reading, I, I came across one of the films that he did that I, I'm ashamed I haven't seen it yet, but after hearing the description of it, I have to see it. Uh, I just haven't gotten around to it yet. The, the film I'm talking about is, uh, is Cinema Paradiso, 
Uh, oh, we, you, were gonna, you, we were going to play a, a cue from that as, as his career kind of goes back to Italy for a moment. Talk to me about that uh, uh, that that film and and uh, and what he accomplished with the music in that. Well, Frank, first of all, you do have to see this film. It is a magical movie. Uh, you know, it's a magical movie experience, and um, you know, and Ennio Morricone scored that film beautifully, absolutely beautifully. Um, I mean, when we had the Zoom call uh, last night with with a, with a bunch of film music fans to to talk about Ennio Morricone. You know, there were two scores that, that showed up most among people's favorites. One was the mission which we just played, and the other was uh, Cinema Parody. So there is such love uh, for this yeah. movie. There is such love for the music that Ennio Morricone wrote to this uh, movie. And I remember when I first saw it, uh, yeah, and I was just completely blown away. And, and the, the particular track that I've, I've picked, it's one of those simplistic, lullabilic things. It's so beautiful. It works so beautifully. Yeah, in, in the movie as well. And and the thing is, you know, we talked about Ennio's Hollywood period where he was doing movies like The Thing, The Untouchables, you know, Casualties of War. Uh, right. But he did have an Italian career going on alongside that. And, and of course, you know, it's an Italian movie, originates in Italy, but it was a huge hit overseas as well. So Cinema Paradiso, as well as The Mission, as well as those Hollywood movies, m- you know, really got Ennio Morricone some some major fans outside of Italy, you know, worldwide. It's such a beautiful score. Yeah, and because it, it seems to me that there's a lot of uh, compilation albums that with his music that almost invariably they include Cinema Paradiso in the title of the of the CD. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I mean. Cinema Paradiso and the Mission. You know, if I if I put those two together, are probably how most people define Ennio Morricone apart from the you know the, the the spaghetti westerns as they're called okay well let's uh let's have a listen to this this is from cinema paradiso it's uh let's see i'll tr- I'll, I'll try here again about my, my limited italian prima giovento i, I believe that's about right <laughs> okay well good I'm, I'm sure i'll get emails but uh, anyway let's uh let's have a listen to this again from the, from the film cinema paradiso uh, and it's written by our uh, our tribute to today, uh, the maestro Ennio Morricone.
I know you had uh, had written something that I had read. I think it was actually just this morning, uh, the morning that we're recording this. You had talked about um, Marconi's uh, ability to experiment in creating new sounds and in very unconventional ways and somehow including that in some of his music. Uh, talk to me about that. I mean, you know, that yeah. he actually did did some things that could be classified as experimental. But one of the reasons that I and, and, and so many of us found Ennio Morricone to be absolutely breathtaking as a composer, uh, and, and he was absolutely breathtaking, is because of his sheer range. Now, you know, he was an experimenter. There's no doubt about it. He loved experimentation in music. You know, I mean, most composers, you know, sort of... They, 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 they're comfortably in the middle of the road. I'm not saying that their music isn't good. It can be really, really good. But but a lot of composers are quite happy, you know, being comfortably in the middle of the road. Some will go to the edge, but Morricone goes right over the edge. You know, he, he really <laughs> explores what's going on outside of what everybody expects to hear. And uh, and I think that's fabulous. And, you know, and we, we've talked about the way that he combines classical and pop and jazz and you know, and improvisation, uh, you know, in so many in, inventive ways. I mean, you know, although we're not playing it on the show today, you know, a very popular tune of Morricone's is The Man with the Harmonica from Once Upon a Time in the West. It's one of his other signature pieces. And, and here we've got a, you know, what sounds like a, a you know, an out-of-tune harmonica with a distorted guitar that becomes opera. I mean, this is incredible. This is This is so inventive. But he could even go more crazy than that. I mean, I, I was listening to the music that he wrote for the Italian version of Space 1999 or Spazio 1999. Mm. Day. And, and, you know, it, it's weird. It's wonderful. It's, it's, you know, it's crazy. And he was <laughs> so capable of that. And, and it has to be said, it has to be said that for a composer who is that experimental and, and so willing to be, to, to go completely out there, to experiment that, that sometimes it has to be said it, it's difficult to listen to and some of his music is difficult to listen to um but at the same time some some of it you when you start to get it you think why this is wonderful you know i mean i've used the example before of a quite um abstract cue in the red tent i mean the red tent starts with, with some beautiful themes but then there's this 22 minute long abstract piece which is cold, it's um, discomforting. It you know it incorporates the, the Morse code for SOS musically into it, which is difficult because that is very awkward in terms of musical timing and musical beats. But but it, you know when you get it, it's wonderful, and and I absolutely adore that. And although I haven't picked any of his really experimental stuff for this show, I really admire the fact. That, that he is so wildly and radically experimental and and gets away with it. <laughs> well, you know, and it's... Um, t tell us a little bit about the, the cue that you wanted to play. I, I guess that's what you've been talking about, about his work being experimental. I yeah, I mean, this, 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 this piece is, again, it's, it's back to his pop music influence, really. It's more sort of pop music in movies. But, uh, but I still find it incredibly 
inventive. I, I didn't I didn't want to introduce something that would be really difficult to hear. So I've gone with something that, that's that's very easy to listen to. It's got a, that sort of bossa nova beat to it. But but it's still a very experimental piece. It comes from from a movie I've never seen. I've got no idea if I'll ever get to see it. Called Vergonia Shivosi. Um, I believe it's called Dirty Angels in, in in the West. Whether that's a direct translation or a retitle, I'm not entirely certain. Uh, okay. But it's a beautiful vocal track uh, called Matto Caldo Soldi Morto Girotondo. And you know, and, and before we play it, I, I I knew what I wanted to say the other time. It, his experimental work, I'm wondering, he was probably one that wanted to serve the needs of the film. He wasn't worried about making it a listenable album later. He wanted it to serve the needs of the film. Would that be safe to say? Yeah, I, I, I think his number one desire was to express something. Uh, you know, wh Whether it was commercially successful or not, I, I, I get the impression that was a secondary factor. You know, He okay. wanted to express something. And sometimes what he wanted to express was very lovely and romantic and tonal. And sometimes what he wanted to express was was dissonant, discordant, and jarring. Okay, well, let's uh, let's have a listen to a little experimentation by Ennio Morricone. Thank you. 
What's amazing to me is that uh, he continued to work, I, I guess, almost literally to the end. Uh, he was still, you know, writing for films, as I, as I recall, and I think still even making concert appearances, if I remember right. Uh, talk about his uh, some of his uh, releases here in the uh, recently that have come out from, I guess, uh, outfits like Quartet Records. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, uh, outlets like Quartet Records are, have been very good for bringing out some Morricone stuff. I mean, one of the things that, that that's really struck me as a collector of Morricone uh, is that a lot of his stuff, I mean, there's vast numbers of titles to choose from, and there's vast numbers of titles that come out, but they very often come out in very limited quantities. Uh, so, for example, there's a, a score from a movie, uh, I'm not going to try its Italian title, I'm just going to say uh, dedicated to the Aegean Sea, uh, you know, which uh, came out in very limited quantities. Uh, you know, an expanded reissue of the Battle of Algiers came out in very limited quantities. But labels like Quartet uh, have been very supportive in, in getting some of the lesser known uh, Morricone titles out there. And, you know, and I really appreciate that. And, and, you know, and to what you were saying about continuing to work and continuing to do concerts, I mean, in 2018, uh, you know, two years ago now, but in two, 2018, I, I went to his 60 Years of Music uh, concert at the O2, and I, I need to call out my friend Dave Norris here because it was you know he'd actually bought the ticket, uh, but he couldn't go, so you know he sold me the ticket, so I got to go instead, and yeah, you know, it was a fabulous experience, you know, uh, to to and the the love for Morricone, you know, in the O2 that night was you know was incredible, but and he he never learned English, right? I mean, he always when it, when he had to work in the states or in the UK, he would always have a translator around. That's correct, isn't it? That that is my belief. I, I mean, that, yeah. some some people have told me that that, that you know he, he could do basic English, but yes, he always had a, a an interpreter. And, and of course, the other thing that we've come to know about Morricone, which, which I really appreciate as well, is that probably his greatest love, uh, possibly even more so than music, uh, but if not, definitely you know. Uh, his first love besides music is family. You know, he, he was apparently a really dedicated family man who really loved his family. And, mm. um, you know, and I, 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 I massively appreciate that too. You know, it kind of makes me wish I knew the guy, you know, it kind of makes me wish that, 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 that I knew that man because yeah. as well as his musical genius, he just seemed like such a grounded human being, such a lovely human being, such a loving human being, you know, and, um, and a man and that, through his work. Yeah, that came through. I want to say, didn't he? I don't want to say a goodbye note, but I mean, it, it almost was kind of like he wrote a goodbye note that really expressed that love of family and of his wife and things like that. Wasn't wasn't that? Uh, didn't I see that in the? Yeah, papers? you did see that. You know, I mean, it was a goodbye note. I mean, you know, he he knew he was going to die, uh, and he, so he actually wrote. Um, you know, he actually wrote a letter that actually started, "I, Ennio Morricone, have died." You know, yeah. he, he wanted to, to leave a, a, a you know a message, and um, you know, and and it, it, it's 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 sort of a joyful and a sad thing all at the same time, you know. Uh, yeah. and, and so I consider it a privilege that I managed to get to that concert and feel all that love that people were expressing for Ennio Morricone that day, and and I do love it that we do have labels like Quartet Records and, and others, of course. I mean, like Beat Records, of course. We mustn't forget those. You know, uh, the, the stuff that Claudio Fuano does uh, to get stuff out. You know, there's lots of people collaborating to get some to get great Morricone out. And but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to pick a, a track from a CD that had recently 
or relatively recently coming come out from quartet records it's out of print now it's only a 500 run of that particular cd wow. at that time um but it's a lovely cue and and our friend henry stanny who who goes by the name of morricone on the film score monthly board talked about this last night and I, I had to pull it out and listen to it and i had to select it for this program it's called le du stagione della vita all right let's have a listen to this then again written by Ennio Morricone.
you know, how do I, how do I begin to, to thank someone such as yourself who I, I know you went through some, some effort and uh, spent some time in, in getting prepped up for this program today. I mean, I, I can't thank you enough, Steve, and I really appreciate it. Oh, you're really welcome. I mean, to both the hardest thing was picking only 10 tracks. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, and, and, but I think you've done a splendid job of it to really show the, the wide variety of, of uh, music that he was able to write during a, an amazing 60-plus year career. Mm. Now, and, and, you know, people are saying, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've got to be tell- kidding me. Stephen didn't choose the ecstasy of gold. Well, I got news for you. Yeah, he did. So I thought that's how we might end his segment. This is again from the movie, The Good, The Bad and the Ugly. And the cue is called The Ecstasy of Gold.
Well, I hope our uh, program has been a fitting tribute to the man uh, and his music. I think I'll end our program today with one of my favorites, which happens to be the, the end titles from the film The Untouchables. There's something about it that I think is just a fitting end to today's program. That's a wrap on our special episode celebrating the life and works of Ennio Morricone. I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Thanks for listening to What's the Score? <laughs>